people are always you know, telling us like, well, that's interesting, that's nice, but how do you know it's working? It won't scale and you do all this stuff. And it's like, we've built a conversational platform. Like we literally see in the conversation data itself when people reference one of these non-scalable things as a reason of why they were here or how they heard of us. Like we can read it, it says it. And even though I explain that to every marketer that, I, that asked me this question, the next thing they say is 100% always the same, which is like, yeah, but how do you know it's working? I just told you. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, a podcast that brings you insights and tactics from the greatest SaaS minds across the world. The show is brought to you by SaaStock, the conference to turn your SaaS up to 11, returning to Dublin in October 15th to the 17th, 2018. Hi there, I'm Irina Jambazova and I run content at SaaStock and produce this show. Today you're hearing my voice while Alex is busy packing after what was an absolutely epic SaaStock New York yesterday. On this week's episode, as part of the SaaS Revolution Show episode 100 special, I am actually taking you to that SaaS Talk New York stage for the chat that Nick Polos, partner at Bowery Capital, had with David Cancel, CEO of Drift, about the stellar journey of reaching 70,000 customers in three years in an incredibly oversaturated vertical that Drift has achieved. David Cancel needs no introduction. The five-time founder who has achieved four exits in his 20-year career had three options in front of him as he left HubSpot where he served as chief product officer. He could do nothing, he could get into the venture capital world, or he could do the whole roller coaster thing one more time. He opted for the third and Drift was born. What it has grown to be is a whole new category of conversational marketing, shifting the buying process in B2B and B2C. Inherently slow and passive, Drift is turning it into a real-time, two-sided conversation. David and Nick's conversation is a treasure trove of insights about hyper-growing, something possible and attainable even when you have thousands of competitors. Listen on to hear why Drift is so customer-driven. What I stumbled upon at Performal and HubSpot now Drift is like, wait, we have access to all the customers, possibly if we wanted to talk to them real time and we wanted to involve them in the process. So why wouldn't you design a whole system around that? But not only for product, but also for selling and all your go-to-market stuff. Like, why wouldn't that be part of the operating system? Yep. Instead of guess, the simplest way to think about it is why not design your incentives and your internal metrics around customer metrics, right? Instead of what we all largely do, which design around company metrics which are almost always in direct conflict with the customer and what the customer wants and then we wonder why you know we're doing things that are against the customer how they have designed their sales process well we only have one model of sales rep which is an ae and that's it we don't have bdrs idrs sdrs adrs whatever you want to call them they're all the same and we have like around 60 of those right now and they handle basically the inbound communication our software figures out, like, is this a strategic account or is this someone we talked to before? It figures out who the customer is, and then that person tries to help them. What is the future of differentiation in SaaS? How do you stand out there? It's not going to be by product, because they can all copy you. It's not going to be by a unique service model, because that's also that you can copy. What's left is the, where we've gone, which is what are good analogs for this, and we've looked at the consumer package good world. Drift Chief Marketing Officer David Gerhardt has played a major role in their success. 
He is one of many speakers joining us at SASTOK 18 in October. As part of the episode 100 celebrations, we would like to offer you a 100 euro discount for tickets. Go to sastalk.com and use code SASREVOLUTION100. That is S-A-A-S-R-E-V-O-L-U-T-I-O-N 100. Now, on with the show. Hello, everyone. Hopefully, you uh, you guys aren't aren't too lethargic after the uh, influx tacos. of tacos just yeah. now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, uh, this session will uh, will spice it up a little bit. Um, you know, as as announced, I have the pleasure today of of interviewing David Cancel. Uh, David is uh, a five-time founder. I think four exits under his belt, yep. uh, and currently founder and CEO of Drift. And I'm sure that most of you have heard of Drift, but it's, it's really an amazing story. Uh, you know, per our title today, uh, zero to 70,000 customers in three years, uh, about 100 million raised mm-hmm. to date. Uh, amazing, huge idea. And what we're gonna try to do over the next 30 minutes is draw out some of the ingredients that David's put to work in building this, this business and this story. And I think we'll reserve five or ten minutes at the end for uh, for questions. Cool. Uh, so yeah, to to kick it off, maybe just I mean, David, what for you was the was the moment which you knew you wanted to start Drift? Was it at HubSpot? Was it afterwards? What was yeah. the inspiration? Yeah, I had uh, already left HubSpot where I was chief product officer. I got there uh, through an acquisition of my last company, Performable, and we have a Performable alumni there, Megan. Kenny Anderson, and, uh, and, and then I, I left. I didn't know what I was going to do. I kind of thought about doing nothing was an option. I considered doing uh, venture, and then, um, then I thought, oh, I, I still have you know, one more left, and so I decided to start a company. Didn't really know what it was going to be about. Definitely didn't know what it was going to be about, but I was obsessed around three ch- uh, changes that were happening in the market. The, the first was this shift in messaging, which is basically the, the big one that we jumped on top of, which was Nothing new was uh, nothing. There was nothing new technically for, on the messaging side. It's been the same my entire career, but the shift in driven by the smartphone and global penetration of going from hundreds of millions of people using messaging to billions overnight, and then the shift of not only using it but every one of those most of those people like wanting to use it as their primary communication means. And so, why that's important is that the hardest thing to do when you're uh, have an idea or product or something is to cause behavior change. And so we had looked at that and said, oh, the behavior change has already happened. Can we do something with that change? Right? Yep. It's not us. That same behavior change fuels Slack and lots of other companies, right? As great as those companies are, it is behavior change that is fueling that momentum. And we saw that. We saw a shift in kind of how people wanted to buy and we saw basically real time and this kind of customer experience shift. And we didn't know how those three things were going to manifest itself in a product, but we started working on Drift. And so today, how would you, you know, just five-second description of what Drift is. I'm sure that's evolved, but yeah, yeah. how would you put it now? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that people interact with it the most is simply a messaging app that lives on your website that helps people during the buying process. And, uh, and so there's a lot more that goes into that, but basically... We do that 24-7, 365, using bots and using AI and using all this kind of stuff. 
But basically, all we're trying to do is turn that very slow B2B, largely, and some B2C slow buying process into one that feels like a real-time buying process, that feels like a frictionless buying process. And so, you know, we think a lot about, like, how do we, how do we take, like, demand gen and selling and all of these things that we've built up over the last 15 years in terms of the inside sales models and all these models and basically take a world of designed around introducing friction and redesign it for a world that's built around this frictionless process. And so what you see drifting right now is just the beginning of that journey. Got it. Well, I think, you know, just in terms of content today, mm-hmm. I, you know, I kind of brought together five or so different points mm-hmm. that you've made in the past. Uh-oh. And one of my biggest you know, learnings from just doing a little bit of background research and what I knew already is David is famous. Yes, the crazy things are good, okay. but, uh, but also counterintuitive almost, right? So kind of bucking traditional trends that you think about in enterprise SaaS, how you're supposed to do things. And almost seems to me like you've kind of taken that on as a as part of the culture of Drift. So I'm going to, you know, some of these may or may not be right, but I'm going to go through five that I pulled out. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll chat about those. Uh, so the first is maybe not counterintuitive per se, but you have an interesting approach to it, which is be customer-driven in all ways yeah. and let that basically drive product, uh, you know, and everything first. Yeah. How and, do you do that? Uh, so I, I kind of stumbled, we stumbled upon that obsession at, Performable, which was a couple, few companies goes by by accident, and then we saw how it was working, and then I think we got to see that it introduced that kind of methodology at scale at HubSpot, and then now have a even different version of it. But what we saw was that we were getting better, basically better results from a product and engineering standpoint if we moved the engineers and the products closest to the customer, and basically all it was doing was shortening the feedback loop. Now that's easy to say, but hard to do because you know right. there's resistance for to wanting to work that way, and it's a whole different methodology along the way of doing that, and uh, and then stepping back and looking at it, it led me to conclude that look, we we were, we've been using these in terms of product, we've been using these methodologies, which I was an engineer a long time ago, that were built in a world where you never had access to a customer. Like I built software for that went on floppy disks and CD-ROMs, if you remember those. Like uh, I won't tell you what size of floppy disk, but like some big ones. And uh, but in that world, we created Waterfall, we created uh, the Agile methodology, right? The whole community, the world, and uh, and they were basically designed these systems for guessing at what the customer would want because we would never have access to someone like that. And we would, even, we would not even know if someone ever used our software or who they were. And now we were, what I stumbled upon at Performable and HubSpot now Drift is like, wait, we have access to all the customers, that possibly if we wanted to talk to them real time and we wanted to involve them in the process. So why wouldn't you design a whole system around that? But not only for product, but also for selling and all your go-to-market stuff. Like why wouldn't that be part of the operating system yep. instead of guessing? Right, and so we just shortened the feedback loop, basically. So for for Drift in particular, you guys facilitate that. Yeah, it's you know, meta. Right, it is meta. Right, you can literally eat your own dog food because yes. you can use your product yeah. to make your listen to your customers. They can use it to listen to theirs. Yeah. But you know, for for all those other SaaS founders out there that may not have that, what does it mean? 
to kind of radically be listening to your customers at all times. Yeah. Like what 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 would you use? You uh, know, how would you do aside it? Aside from drift, I mean, you, you could <laughs> use anything. Only. You could, yeah. You, but basically, uh, the way it looks, the simplest way to think about it is, why not design your incentives and your internal metrics around customer metrics, right? Instead of what we all largely do, which design around company metrics, which are almost always in direct conflict with the customer and what the customer wants. And then we wonder why, you know, we're doing things that are against the customer. Like, it's the whole thing is crazy. So, like, yeah, I right. do think about these things, like, in, from a different perspective because it's, like, I try to take it down to the bare elements and say, like, is the whole thing, does it even make sense instead right. of following along? And I think, you know, that particularly style has come from just thinking about, like, look, if we want our chance at exponential returns of, in any sort, then doing exactly what everyone else does, by definition, will not get you exponential returns. Like, yep. right? that's simple to say, but like yeah. everybody just does what everyone else does and then hopes for some 100x returns, right? <laughs> like, it's crazy. So. A little crazy, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's working. So when you do, when you do listen to customers, yeah. what, what's, what do you listen for? Like, um, do you listen for what they, what they want, what they say they need, what they currently hate about what they're doing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like you guys are solving a problem, but when you think about interacting with your clients, mm -hmm. there's a million products you could build. Uh, so, yeah. you know, how, you, you guys have a really strong view on that. Mm -hmm. What do you pay attention to? Yeah, the way we're doing it now is different because we're actually trying to solve for the end customer, not our customer, but the end user. So our model is a little bit different because of that. But in the cases for most companies where you're solving for the customer you actually sell to, like, what we look for is not this, which I think is what people get caught up on. Like, are they going to tell me what to do? Do they know how to design products? Like, how do they know what they need? Like, all that stuff. Like, they're never, that's your job. They're never going to tell you that stuff. What we look for is uh, basically an empathy and an intimacy that we build up with the customer so that we understand some of the problems that they're facing, even if they don't. And most of the time, they can't ever express the problem, like, in terms that you would understand. But we know them close enough. Like in science, like you would be running, you know, tests and control groups and you would be looking and a lot of what you would do, be doing is observation. And so we're doing the same thing when we're building products, which is like, hey, how do we observe what's actually happening? How do we spend time with customer success or sales or marketing or whoever is our proxy for or support people who spend time with the customer? And then how do we spend time with the real customer and see where all these pains are? And then how do we optimize for solving those pains? And most of the interesting product things that come out of that are never things that are clearly articulated by the customer. So, so would that, you know, would that mean that you guys don't have a traditional sales framework? Like you're not looking to, you know, you're not training all your SaaS sellers on Bant and asking about budget and these sorts of things. Is it more, does that yeah. mean be more amorphous and touchy-feely uh, when you're selling or was it? I don't know if it's, uh, it is, let's see, no, we, the way that we design our sales process, we don't use Bant and we don't use any of those things. And uh, we basically are there to help our customers, right? We think like the helping is the new selling, right? And so we're there and most of our customers come through an inbound process, right? So this is not an outbound process, uh, driven, driven process. So they come inbound, they have a question, we try to answer their question. Or we only have one model of sales rep, which is an AE, and that's it. We don't have BDRs, IDRs, SDRs, ADRs, whatever you want to call them. And we don't have different, they're all the same, and we have 
like around 60 of those right now. And, uh, and they handle basically the inbound communication. And then we try to, our software figures out like, is this a strategic account or is this someone we talked to before? Or is this like, figures out who the customer is. And then that person tries to help them during the process. And, uh, and what they're optimizing for is starting the relationship with the customer, whether that's on a free product, whether that's on a $50 product. And uh, because we see if we can make them successful in our model, like that they naturally will expand. And so, you know, it's kind of land and expand to the max, right? So it's just yep. like, just get in, just use it. Like, we'll help you. And uh, I don't need to do much upselling or prying if it works for you. So, so I think that's a, that's a good segue to the next one, which I believe this is something you've said a couple times in the past, do things that don't scale. Mm-hmm. And to me, only hiring AEs ever and with this kind of process and not thinking about SDRs, BDRs, mm-hmm. that might be one of them. Mm-hmm. What, what are some other things that you've done that maybe just people wouldn't think, you know, this is not going to scale? This, this is crazy. Um, so many. We actually are writing a book now, which we will, if you go to our website, we will send it to you for free. It's a real book. Uh, it's called This Won't Scale. <laughs> so to your point, and it's a book around like how we approach our marketing because right. most of our the things that we do in marketing would fall under this it won't scale kind of framework. So in terms of like marketing stuff that we do, uh, we talk to people one on one, which by definition everyone will say that doesn't scale. I can't do that, and it's like, what's more important than that? Well, being in the meeting or running a process or updating this Google spreadsheet, like this is more important. It's like it's never more important. Like right, right. like we try to use the this this idea of like, let's just treat this website like it was this physical store that we're in. And so like, how would you want to be treated? Like, and so we look at models mostly in the service world. Like we hired a few people from the Four Seasons. Uh, we have other people from the service world that think about like, what is this experience that you would want, right? And how would you want to be treated? And that's what people are, and the reason why is not just because we're touchy feeling and it's like good Kool-Aid, but be, because we believe fundamentally that the price premium and discretionary spending is moving to only experiences, right? Yep. All, I don't care what you create, whether you create this, those shoes or like a piece of software or this monitor here, like it is moving fast to experiences and that's where the price premium is. And if it doesn't feel like a magical experience, then I'll buy it off Alibaba at the cheapest price possible. So I think, you know, you see the separation in the market. And so that's why we do it. And then it feels good, and we feel good about doing it as well. But there is, a, there is an economic reason to do it. And so we look at uh, doing things like that. So we'll do books. That doesn't scale, right? Like sending books to lots of people. We send, obviously, T-shirts and swag and gifts and stuff like that all over the world to people just for asking us. We review a lot of books on our own podcast that we have. And, uh, and we just say, like, if you want this book, just let us know. And people will send us a message. And we will, we will basically go and send them a book, right? And so we do things like that that are memorable. And, um, and even the podcast is something that everyone has a podcast now or some of the video stuff that we do now. People are always, you know, telling us like, well, that's interesting. That's nice. But how do you know it's working? It won't scale. And you do all this stuff. It's like we built a conversational platform. Like we literally see in the conversation data itself when people reference one of these non-scalable things as a reason of why they were here or how they heard of us, like we can read it, it says it. And even though I explain that to every marketer that, I, that asked me this question, the next thing they say is 100% always the same, which is like, yeah, but how do you know it's working? It's like, you know, it's like a surreal thing. It's like, right. I just told you, every single one of them. Like, and I could tell them an example, look, let me show you this. 
Nick just said on episode 117 of the podcast, when I said this thing, blah, 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 blah. It's not like I just heard a podcast. It's like right. deep. And it's like, yeah, but how do you track that? I'm like, I just showed you how we track it. Like it's a, right. it's a, I think, I'm sorry to go off on this because I think we're in a crazy state of the market where we've kind of over, we always overcorrect on things. We've overcorrected on just being so data driven and this idea of like, BDRs, SDRs, this, models, efficiencies, CAC, LTV. Mm-hmm. And I know Scott was up earlier, which who I love. And it's all awesome. But like now everyone's read that playbook. Everyone's yep. read the LTV to CAC ratios, this, that, payback periods. So like everyone knows it. Yep. But when that stuff was working, and it still works, but when it was working really incredibly well, nobody knew what any of that stuff meant. So there was the arbitrage, right? And so yep. the arbitrage slowly goes away. So. Anyway, sorry for my rants. No, no, that's... that's but that's why that's, uh, I'm brought on for rants. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So tying into that, you, you've, you've said in the past, I think, that you feel that product-based differentiation is on the way out. Definitely, 100%. And story-based, and maybe even you're saying kind of service experience-based. Yeah. Uh, differentiation is the future. Mm-hmm. I, I think experience-based is the future. And so... Um, I think, you know, product-based differentiation is gone. Like, when I started writing, again, I started working on my first SaaS product in 2000, before we knew what SaaS was, and that company was called Compete, and we called it, like, uh, we said we were going to sell subscriptions via e-commerce. Um, you know, it was, like, some convoluted, like, way of describing it that no one understood what we were talking about. And uh, so I started working on it back then, And but at that point, like, product and technology differentiation was a thing. Patents were a thing. Like, there was, like, you could have or uh, you could have these wedges that you would create in the market and these moats that would get created around technology because someone couldn't figure out how you did this thing or doing it would just take too long. But now things have flattened and everyone, you know, whether it's AWS or, like, you can look at a million reasons why all of these services, so now you can compose something so quickly. So, like, there isn't a product made now. It doesn't matter if it's physical virtual in terms of software that cannot be copied immediately, right? And you don't have to spend much time but looking at some of the stuff again on Alibaba or in software now that is happening. And so, you know, it's relevant to all of us now because that Drift, you know, when we started Drift, like, we're in a world of thousands of competitors, right? When I did Compete, we couldn't name a competitor, right? Like, when we were at the next company, we could name, like, three competitors. And then the next company, we could name five competitors. Fast forward to now, like, I don't know what category you're, anyone's in, but you have thousands of competitors, whether they're direct head-to-head competitors or they're competitors that compete for time or service or something or budget, you have thousands. So how do you stand out there? It's not going to be by product because they can all copy you. It's not going to be by a unique service model because that's also co- you can copy. What's left is the, where we've gone, which is, well, how to, what are good analogs for this? And we've looked at the consumer package good world and said, like, well, how do those people, how does PNG think about this? Like, how do people that have no moats from a product or um, service standpoint, how do they build moats? And, and, and so that's where we think things are going, these emotional moats. Yep. Right? So, so as, as part of that, another big theme of yours is creating your own category. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, it seems like you guys almost use that as a way to differentiate, you know, with Intercom and whomever else already out there. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious to know, you know, when you have 70,000 customers and everyone knows about Drift, that's awesome. But when you were looking at your first 100 customers, you know, was that a challenge that you didn't, you know, you weren't claiming to be in the customer success management space specifically or, you know, that you kind of had a 
your own category you're trying to make. Definitely. So like 12 to 18 months ago, we created this category we call it conversational marketing. I hated the name because I was like, conver- I don't know, maybe <laughs> you can't spell conversational. Like in marketing, it's too long. But anyway, we created it and it was the best of the the best of all the evil ones that we created or the bad ones we created. And then uh, we woke up recently and was like, oh, everyone, people are using it. And there's a, it's a category and we see lots of competitors, big, small, whatever, massive, like starting to use those words. And so like, that's interesting. And uh, but the reason that we create, uh, what we did when we created that category, because no one knew of us, was to basically use stories. So we went back and this was in our marketing, we spent a lot of time a lot of time, we still spend a lot of time trying to like simplify what we do and talk about it in terms of like analogies, right? Like what would be a good analogy for what we're trying to do? And that's how we came up with the store. And I think the store was the first one that hit people. Uh, and we used that, I used that in some talk, I don't remember where, and I could see like, you could see in the audience like it just hit, right? Like, okay, that was a hook, it just hit. Because we said, look, imagine your website's a store, you spend all this money driving people to this store, and when they come to the store, there's no one there. And the only hopes that the whole business model that you have and the only hope you have is that they leave you your, their name, phone number, and email address like on a piece of paper. And you hope that you see the piece of paper and you hope that you get back to it. But usually when we look at your companies, uh, you usually take days, weeks, or months to get back to them. So like, how would that feel if you walked into the store and like a month later after leaving your name, they said, hey, Nick. Uh, we're ready to meet you now. We're ready to sell you something. Come back <laughs> right. to the store. And everyone laughs. And we're, I'm like, that's the only model in B2B selling. Yeah. That's the entire model. Right? Like, that's it. Whatever you're doing, whatever tools you use, and, most, and by the way, most of the people that I'm talking to use like 60 different tools, which they don't believe at first until they go back and audit. Like 60 different tools perfectly integrated with the right marketing ops, sales ops, this, that. Everything has to work magically. And at the end, the result is we'll get back to them in a month. Right? Like... The whole thing is crazy. So we use yep. that story, and we have lots of other stories like that. But that was the first story that really helped us break through before anyone understood what the category was. So is that the, the impetus for, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but you know, we have a member of the traditional sales force, you know, no, uh, no software, <laughs> yeah. logo. You guys yeah, yeah. have that, but no forms. Yeah, we came so. up with that in the beginning because we were focused at the top of the funnel. We used... The same thing was Benioff play to use no forms because we thought the whole thing, the form represented leaving your name, phone number, email address in this thing. But every part of the funnel, that's only the top of the funnel, doesn't make sense, right, at this point. Because we, and it made sense and it continues to work somewhat less, less well, but it doesn't make sense for the world that we live in where we can have we have this messaging, we have real-time everything, we have all these things that we can order, you know, a car or a plane or whatever in real time from my phone. But yet, like, it'll take me a month for you to, like, email me after I download a PDF. Like, what? Like, it's kind of crazy. And then we think about it and say, will that model still exist? The way that we have success in sales and BDRs, will that be the same in 10 years? Doubt it. Will it be the same in 30 years? There's no way. Right? Like, it doesn't make sense. So what is the new model for this? But the whole stack doesn't make sense. If we think about CRMs, they don't make any sense. The whole, like, fundamentally... And I built the CRM in the past, but like it fundamentally makes no sense, right? Because if you describe it to a normal human, a CRM is a database table. Think about it as a spreadsheet that only contains metadata about a conversation or activity that has happened and not the conversation and not the activity, but just the metadata. And the metadata can only exist in that database 
if you get this person who doesn't, the sales rep, who doesn't want to put it in to right. put the metadata in the thing. And then we build all of our reporting and systems on top of data that they didn't want to put in that doesn't actually have the thing. Like, if you describe that and have that conversation with a normal, non-SAS, like be, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's just this right. data, right? Like, and then we do this thing, and it's like, no, something is crazy. Like, that's right. crazy. Uh, and so that's where we are now. So, you know, obviously, you and Dritz are kind of famous for creating this new category and, you know, talking about story-led differentiation. But at the end of the day, how much of, it, how much of the success do you think is really just driven by Drift's product is better? And, you know, versus you kind of have this unique story, you have great service. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, how do you interplay? I mean, at the end of the day, if Drift wasn't helping people sell more or generate more leads, it wouldn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you Exactly, do you so the performance has to be there. So we think about, like, the modern moat for us is, like, it is product is important, but it also needs other things. For us, it needs brand and it needs service. We actually have a, a hidden one, which we don't talk about, but there's, there's these, all these things together create the moat. The product alone is not enough. So yeah, the product has to be effective, and um, it, it is effective and uh, for our customers, but the reason it's effective is not to say it's not hard. It is hard, what we're doing, but it's very simple, right? All we're doing right now is going, is skipping all of these crazy steps that take you weeks or a month to do, and then we try to do it in real time and, uh, and get that person to someone who can help them quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, like if you do that, if that happens in seconds or in minutes versus mo a month, like your sales performance is going to be better, your opportunity close ratio is going to be better, like the customer happiness is going to be, like everything's going to be better, but it's, it's just, it's a very simple thing that we're doing right now, and then it will expand over time, but it's, it's very simple mechanics of why, and, and for companies, it's a very easy concept because at a C level, it's like, okay, I don't have to spend any more on advertising and we don't have to hire any more people. Yeah, okay, so I try it. If it doesn't work, then I have nothing to lose. Yeah. And, then when it, and then at the sales rep level, it's like, oh, something qualifies stuff for me and like, I don't have to do it and then I just get it on my phone, ping, and I don't have to be at my desk. Yeah, then it's simple, right? So yep. it's very simple sell to, to those kind of people. So you guys have, have raised a pretty hefty chunk of capital. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that is, you know, given how important it is for you guys to have kind of transformational service and constant interaction with customers, do you have to have a little bit more of a capital intensive model because you have to, you know, hire up a lot of customer success early, you know, basically have all, you know, support these non-scalable strategies? Yeah, <laughs> not scalable, yeah. Uh, Yes and no. I'd say, you know, when we raised, so we, we've raised $107 million. Uh, when we raised this last chunk, which was 60, we had not yet spent the 32 million that we had raised before that. So there is a fish, there's a lot of efficiency in the model right now. Uh, way more efficient than, than the traditional model. We eat our own dog food through our own product. That's why we don't have BDRs and all those kind of stuff. It is way more efficient. Um, and so we hadn't spent that money. I don't even know if we've started spending that money still. Uh, that, that's Series B. Uh, but the reason that we raised the money was I don't want to sell the company. And mm -hmm. so we thought we need to be prepared for the long haul, right? We want to build this enduring company. I have no interest in selling the company. I've sold the last 
four companies, and so I was like, this is it. Also, my wife has told me this is my last company, <laughs> so I got to like extend it forever. Just, yeah, yeah. She said, make it count. She's like, there's, there's no more companies after this. Uh, so the, after the fifth one, she's like, there's no mas, no mas. With $100 million in the bank, she may be waiting for a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that's why we raised it. We have no intention of selling it, and so we, and then we looked at the models and said, you know, on average, what does it take a SaaS company to go public, like, someday? Like, yeah, it takes a certain amount of money, even the most capital-efficient ones. What is, what is different about the way that you guys sell mm-hmm. versus other traditional SaaS companies? Yeah. Uh, I'd say the number one thing that happens is that we use our own product, right, So to sell. And we're most largely selling to an inbound audience, right, that's coming in. And so that's, that's different because... Uh, we're basically getting good at sifting through the people that, not sifting sounds bad, but basically filtering through the people that come to the website. And so why that's important is that a typical, let's say, an AE that may come in that's come from some other experience who sold a different way uh, has come in and then their first week they're on Drift itself and they're talking to people. And what happens is they end up closing a deal and it could be tiny or whatever, uh, in the first couple of days of being on the job, which is crazy. Uh, and so to them, they have like this holy shit moment, right? Like, and we see it every single time where they're like, what was that, right? Like what just happened? Like that's never right. happened in my career. Then they go out and try to sell that. So it becomes an evangelical model where it's like, this thing just happened to me. Like, why wouldn't you do this? And then we've heard, including our VP of sales and a lot of these early sales reps were like, well, I'm never going to sell any other way. Like, this is like, the only way to sell, right? And then you, it's easy. We're not training them to say that. They just experience it themselves. And so they're selling something they're they living. Same for our demand gen and marketing teams. Like, they're living it. And they'll, they'll look at their conversion rates or their sign-up rates versus someone else. And we'll show, we show them to other marketers. And they're like, whoa, what is that? It's like, well, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Great. Well, last question for me. And then I know we have some that, that have popped up here. Uh, just quickly, so looking at your background, it, if I did my research right, so you were accounting and computer science mm-hmm. undergrad. Several of the past founder roles, you were the CTO or technical yep. co-founder. Yep. Uh, except for performable, yep. Except for performable. And, you know, head of product at HubSpot. So you're never really primarily a marketing guy. No. Yet, you know, that's a big part of the story now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what being happened? an evangelist. Yeah. Yeah, like... A, what happened, but B, also, I think there are probably a lot of founders out there who are thinking, who are looking at stories like this and saying, could I be that guy? Yeah. You know, who's telling a transformational story and dealing with all this press and, you know, having such a big vision. Could I handle that? So do you have anything to advise? Um, Yeah, I definitely wasn't doing any marketing before. Um, I think I kind of, I'm an OCD uh, person and so like I can I go deep on anything and so it's been largely product and stuff like that and I just like going deep on stuff at some point I started to have this thought about like well I don't think product's enough right this is even before starting Drift right around when we were starting I don't think it's enough like how are we going to stand out in the next company like what's happening in the market and I started to like really think about it and then I, I started to think about storytelling and then so I went deep in kind of reading and researching and storytelling. And that's what we do now in our marketing team, how we train people. We started mm-hmm. to study copywriters and, you know, like the Mad Men era and the pre-Mad Men era. And like, how did people sell from the back of magazines? Like the whole thing of just like, basically what are the cognitive biases and the social triggers and like all this kind of really like geeking out on that side of social psychology. And, uh, and then the importance of storytelling and the arc and, you know, like, 
the arc of storytelling and how all stories, so I, I went crazy. I'm like, all, all stories just follow the same pattern. I'm just like, I've never seen this pattern before. And so once I started to geek out on that, I started to apply it in what we do. But they can be trained because I was not, I don't have any marketing in me. Yeah. Good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's try to hit some of these. Yeah. Uh, speed round. Yeah, speed round. Um, looks like we have a couple different ones. But yeah, I mean, we, I think selling into large enterprises, that's a good question. So does Drift sell into large enterprises? Who's your buyer there? And maybe just color on how that's different. Yeah. I know you guys service the whole... The whole thing, yeah. We definitely sell into large enterprises. I'd say, uh, honestly, like right now, we're like divisional enterprise, right? So from a logo-based standpoint, they're large, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies that we're in, uh, that we sell into. And we're usually selling to the head of demand gen or the head of sales, right? And depending on the org, that might sit in sales, it might sit in marketing, as you know, like every company's a little bit different how they mix that thing. And so we're selling to that person. Basically, they have sales reps. Someone's problem is that these sales reps don't have enough opportunities. Like, and, right. uh, and I've never seen a company where the sales <laughs> reps don't have enough opportunities. So like someone owns that or a group owns that and we sell to that group. Great. Uh, we talked a little bit about competitors. There are plenty out there you could call competitors. Do they affect your product roadmap, and should they? Uh, no. Uh, so, uh, you know, another infamous thing that I'm always talking about is, like, that, that I don't, we don't care, that I personally don't care about competitors, like, that I care about, that true competition for us has always been, like, indifference. Like, if no one cared about conversational marketing in the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many competitors you could draw on a piece of paper, like, it doesn't matter, right? And, and the flip side, like, if people really care about the category, then there will be, by definition, a gazillion competitors, and if they're not there now, they will come later. And mm -hmm. so, like, there are gonna be competitors we can't operate in that world. I think the smart thing is to be, know that, that there, are, there is competition for what you're doing, uh, but we stay focused on the customer and we follow the, you know, that ethos of like, if we believe if we stay the closest to the customer, like that we will win, right? And that versus being competitor focused and we live that every day. We'll see if that's right or wrong. Great. Uh, okay, so I, maybe just last one. Yep. I mentioned this. Um, so we have a question about your f first 100 customers. You're at 70,000 today. You have a lot of brand presence. Yeah. Yeah, maybe just the, the question specifically is what sales strategies you use to acquire yeah. your first 100? Beg, you know, beg. I think, you know, we did a thing which is we've done a couple companies now, which um, again sounds easy, but it's not. Is when we started before we had a product, before we had a concept, uh, before we had something we could show, I should say. We went out to, in our network, people that we knew that were at certain types of companies in these type of roles, and then asked them to be our first customers. And we asked them for any money that they had on them. And so we have in our office $10, $20, like framed, you know, signed by a certain company. And we said, like, whatever we end up building, like, you'll have lifetime access to it. And these companies have lifetime access to it. And so there's a bunch of those companies. Price Intelligently was, was one of them. Uh, and we begged and begged. That, now, that sounds like simple, but we probably went out to a couple hundred companies and it was probably like, you know, whatever, those first 50 came out of there. But, and we knew a lot of people. 
right? Like everyone can tell you like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll help you. But like when you actually ask them or ask them for the 20 bucks, Nick, <laughs> do you have 20 on you? Um, no one steps up. And so like people stepped up and, and uh, we're honored that they did. That's how we got the first group. Then after that, it naturally started to grow from that group, right? So I would, if you're starting a company, I would advise just ask people for anything that they have on them, a dollar, 25 cents, 20 bucks, 100. I think we, someone had 100 on them, so we do have wow. 100, which Generous. is amazing. I don't even know where you get a $100 bill because I haven't gone to the bank. Yeah. Perfect. Well, I think we should wrap, but uh, David, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. have enjoyed this episode of the SaaS Revolution show and have picked up valuable lessons from Nick Polos and David Cancel. If you didn't get a chance to listen to our episode 100 radio hour on how to grow your SaaS that we released last week, I encourage you to give it a listen. It packs the most relevant advice and tactics our guests have given us in the past three years. As always, if you like what we're doing, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.